You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You can almost say it's a history who done it. Who created a system where the person that gets the most votes is not elected president? A system different from most elections we're used to from the way that most people probably voting feel like it's going to go. The way we elect state legislatures, school boards, congresspersons, governors, whoever gets the most votes wins. And in the past few weeks, I've seen the blame shifted around. The wig wearers, the slaveholders, the elitists of old, Democrats, the Republicans, Alexander Hamilton. James Madison, but indeed so many have a role in the Electoral College and some strange political bedfellows, a Mississippi segregationist, an obscure New Jerseyan, a talented writer with a peg leg, Bob Dole, an anti-feminist congressperson, the Urban League, President Nixon, and, well, Joe Biden, at least a little. Let's start here, and it might be a strange place because you're probably expecting me to talk about that convention in Philadelphia in 1787. But I want to start here, 1969, in the U.S. Senate, on a very obscure Senate committee, or really subcommittee, the Judiciary Subcommittee on Constitutional Amendments. Pretty far from finance appropriations, foreign affairs, not something that's going to get the flashbulbs going. But here, at this time, the prairie populist, Birch Bayh, was an unlikely player in shaping the nation's most important decision. He was a young man on a mission, 26 years old, described in the New York Times as handsome, tall, ambitious. Not too many of them in the Senate, right? He was elected to the Indiana House of Representatives when he was age 26. He would soon be elected speaker of that body, the youngest ever in that state. He would finish his law degree while he was serving in the legislature. Then he runs for Senate in 1962 and defeats a legend in Republican politics. Now he's in the Senate. And as a young senator, Democrats have the majority. He can expect not exactly the golden plum assignment. He's getting the subcommittee doesn't matter. He aimed to turn the subcommittee into an opportunity, into something that would get 
attention. And in the 1960s, a time of quick change, it's not such a bad idea, perhaps, to be on a committee of amendments to the Constitution. In fact, he works with other members, including a crafty old House member, Emanuel Seller from Brooklyn, who had been elected to Congress in 1923 and had worked on many civil rights bills. After the assassination of President Kennedy, they start working on the 25th Amendment, which is going to change the line of presidential succession. In the future, he's going to go on to work on the 26th Amendment, allowing 18-year-olds the right to vote. Birch by. We'll do this. But that's not what he wanted the 26th Amendment to be. If it was up to Birch, that would have been the 27th Amendment. And what the 26th Amendment would have been is abolishing the Electoral College. He takes this on to 1969, and he has a lot going for him. A good House ally in, once again, the affable Emanuel Seller on the House side. The bill to abolish the Electoral College there is going to pass the House in 1969, 338 to 70, well past the two-thirds needed for a constitutional amendment to be proposed. He's got some heavyweight backers in the Senate. Republicans Jacob Javits of New York, Richard Griffin of Michigan, Howard Baker of Tennessee, Richard Schweiker of Pennsylvania. He's got great institutional support, great organizations behind him. The American Bar Association wants the Electoral College abolished. The NAACP, the Chamber of Commerce, the ACLU, the League of Women Voters, leading newspapers, and somebody else. The President of the United States, Richard Nixon. want to encourage you to sign up for the premium podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. And a note, we're entering the holiday season now. There is a mechanism there at MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPoliticsPremium.com where you can give a gift subscription to someone else. So we have that set up. MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPoliticsPremium.com Nixon had come on board because his 1968 win was close and his opponent, Hubert Humphrey, almost could have snuck in with a narrow electoral college win due to the presence of a third-party candidate, George Wallace. A change in less than 200,000 votes, where Nixon got 500,000 in the popular vote, but a change of less than 200,000 votes could have earned Humphrey the presidency. And more dangerously, a change of just 46,000 votes in the right states would have made it a tie and put all of the power in the hands of George Wallace. Now, Nixon had a Southern strategy, and he'd work with Wallace probably better than Humphrey could, but he certainly didn't want to have to kowtow to him. During the election of 1968, the candidates sense where this might go. Maybe Humphrey's going to win a narrow electoral college majority. Nixon says the popular vote winner should win the election. Humphrey defends the Constitution. Now he's in office. After winning the election, Nixon voices support for changing the way the nation elects its president so that this situation will never happen again. 
the resulting amendment by seller, an attempt to put a constitutional amendment out to the state legislatures, where they're going to need three-fourths of the state legislatures, clears the House and goes to the Senate. They need two-thirds of the Senate. Here's the proposal. There'll be a popular vote, and the popular vote winner will become president unless they cannot get 40%. So if someone's only able to get like a plurality of 36% because there's third parties in the rate, say, there's a runoff, and the two top candidates will fight it off. No involvement from any electoral college that's abolished. No involvement from the House or Senate. Buy's battle was in the Judiciary Committee. He's a member of that committee, but Mississippi Senator James Eastland, a segregationist, was against the proposal. He did everything he could to stymie the effort. For one, he introduces a poison pill. He says, well, instead of 40%, let's do 50. Well, 50 is going to change the whole ball game. Well, not everyone's going to get 50% of the vote. Many presidents in recent elections have not. Scary to some proponents. He really didn't want a popular vote. This is what we call a poison pill bill intended to kill it. Eastland's committee starts hearing this, but he, he arranges to have witnesses without consulting by. The witnesses were mostly opposed to a popular vote. One of them is Theodore White, a historian. He opines that the popular vote would lead to racial oppression. Minority groups would lose their identity when all votes are equal. A direct system would react brutally on our black population, White says. Another professor at Yale said to the group of, lest we forget, Republican and Democratic senators to this group, that the popular vote would encourage third parties. Do we want that? Then they interview Dr. Lloyd Bailey. He's an ophthalmologist from North Carolina. And during the election, while North Carolina went for Nixon, he as an elector was what they call a faithless elector. He didn't follow the state's voters' instructions. He voted for George Wallace in the Electoral College instead of Nixon. He liked Nixon, he said. But when he saw that Nixon appointed Kissinger... And Kissinger and some other administration appointees have ties to that Council of Foreign Relations. And you know that's just a communist group. Senator Strom Thurmond, who's on the Judiciary Committee, supports Bailey's choice. This shows the independence of the American voter, the American elector, that the framers wanted when they formed the Constitution. Lacking some good witnesses in the Judiciary Committee, senators speak out for it. And you have uh, two significant Republicans. One is Howard Baker, Republican of Tennessee. Tennessee is a somewhat small state. It's also a southern state. So his support for Bayes' amendment, uh, for Bayes' constitutional amendment, is crucial here. Although the Electoral College remains, its reason for being has passed. It's more than a harmless anachronism. It's a dangerous impediment between the voting citizen and the highest office of the land. Richard Swiker, Republican of Pennsylvania, also supports the popular vote. And by the way, he says, this isn't going to help third parties that much. 
Because if it's a runoff system, the only thing a third party is going to be able to do is not win the presidency, but force the two main parties into a runoff. And Muskie of Maine says, it's a faulty premise that the president represents the states and not the people. Bai has the support of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He's got to get it through the committee and then onto the floor of the Senate. He has the support. He likely has the votes, even if the chairman, Eastland, is very much against him. But Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, who's on the committee, he stalls with various amendments tacked on, with other procedures, with postponements, using all the senatorial procedures and courtesies afforded a senator. From June 1969... To April 1970. Strom Thurmond's throughout this time threatening an actual filibuster if the matter comes up. This is dangerous because you know a filibuster in the Senate. So all the senators up there and saying, like, let me read now, you know, <laughs> from the book of Job and this and that, and, you know, and, and another thing, um, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. <laughs> While they're talking, on and on, and Thurmond is one of the great masters of the filibuster and could do this very well. The senators can interrupt for a procedural motion to do a cloture vote, and if you can get 60 senators, you can stop that senator from talking. But on a committee, there is no cloture procedure. A senator could endlessly keep talking and talking and talking, and Thurmond's threatening to do this. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, President Nixon, who had supported the notion of getting rid of the Electoral College, is becoming a little bit more tepid. And now his attorney general tells the newspapers, John Mitchell, that he would support it, but he wouldn't push it in Congress. That seems to be a signal to go ahead and resist. So Bai does something. He asks his GOP co-sponsors to help him with Nixon, to get Nixon to push some of the senators to vote for it. But there's to be no arm twisting from the president. He's unsuccessful. It is at this point that Bai, sensing that the president is going to deliver a vote here, he just wants to be wrapped in the flag of popular vote, but isn't going to deliver votes, Bai tells Thurmond, Nixon has a Supreme Court justice coming up, Carswell. He's well-liked by the South. He's from Florida. He tells Thurmond, you filibuster this in the Judiciary Committee. I'm going to filibuster Nixon's Supreme Court justice. Thurmond sees that threat. He wants Carswell on the Supreme Court. And he relents. Now it's on the floor of the Senate. So a quick question from a listener. I was asked on the Fans of By History Can Beat Up Your Politics by David Griffin uh, if the Electoral College was invented by Alexander Hamilton, as there are a number of people saying that on memes on Facebook right now. This is because of the recent confrontation between the cast of the play Hamilton 
and Mike Pence at one of the shows, and some people are responding, well, isn't it ironic Alexander Hamilton invented the Electoral College? And the answer is that he didn't. He really didn't, because as we're about to talk about, the committee that would end up creating the Electoral College created it while Alexander Hamilton was out. He had left the convention for a time and went back to New York to finish up law practice. To He was a little frustrated. Actually, Alexander Hamilton, during the Constitutional Convention, was outvoted most of the time. Voting was by state delegations. He was with two conservatives. So New York's votes were, were going to them, and he was outvoted most of the time. He couldn't wait for them to be absent and then vote alone because they didn't allow that. You had to have a quorum in your delegation for your state's vote to count. So Alexander Hamilton had a limited influence on the convention. I think, first of all, he gets a lot of attention, especially nowadays, with the play and everything. Some of it deservedly. But also because he was such an advocate for the Constitution after the fact, after it was created. But you can't say he created the Electoral College. That was done in a committee we're about to talk about, and he wasn't a member of the committee. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Howard Baker of Tennessee, once again, I am from a small state, Baker said, and if we get an advantage as a small state, it's demonstrably unfair, that advantage. Henry Belmont, Oklahoma Republican, says, I was against direct vote, too, because I thought of it as hurting small states. It helps small states. Look at this, Belmont says. Sixteen states were not visited in the 1968 presidential election. Sixteen states. And they all range from three to ten electoral votes. Don't tell me electoral college helps small states. But there was significant opposition, and a big leader of the opposition was Roman Hruska from Nebraska. If we adopt this, he said, This will set our republic out on uncharted sea, with no guarantee that the slightest political breeze won't capsize our ship of state. And from September 11th to September 17th, 1970, there's debate on this matter. There's amendments, there's votes, there's talks. By sees what's going on. They're putting on too many amendments. It's it's in effect a filibuster by any other name. Majority Leader Mansfeld, leader of the Democrats, who supports the bill, calls for cloture to end the amendments to have a vote. That motion for cloture fails by six votes. Birch Bay tries one more play. He's already sacrificed his big weapon, the filibuster of a Supreme Court justice, didn't need it anyway, but sacrificed it for the sake of getting a popular vote. Now he says he, Birch Bayh, will stop the business of the Senate until this filibuster stops and there's a vote on his bill. 
It's a reversal of sorts. See, he as a senator can block unanimous consent to normal business. I'll stop doing that, he says. I'll shut this Senate down. This is something that even his own Democrats, Mike Mansfield, the majority leader, don't want him to do. Yet he does it. This forces a final cloture vote on September 29, 1970. There are 53 senators, enough for a majority, but not enough to get two-thirds who vote for cloture. Blocking it, particularly our Southern Democrats, there's Robert Byrd of West Virginia, Eastland of Mississippi, Richard Russell, LBJ's old protege from Georgia, Sam Irvin, a Democrat from North Carolina, Fulbright of Arkansas. There are also Republicans who are voting no on cloture, in effect to kill the bill. Bob Dole of Kansas, Barry Goldwater of Arizona, John Tower of Texas. A majority of both parties' senators wanted to continue debate, but there were enough combined to block the bill. 36 senators was all they need. And that's the most significant modern attempt to end the Electoral College ended with a filibuster. New York Times writes a scathing editorial after it's over, saying, you know, indicating how a filibuster is so inappropriate for this type of bill, because all the Senate would have been doing by approving it is sending it out to the states. Filibuster should be used for legislation that might be passing the Senate too hastily, but not for something that the states have to vote on in any case. 36 senators were enough to kill the most significant attempt to get an amendment on the Electoral College. Now, if you're a supporter of the popular vote, you want to shake your fist right now. And who you're going to shake your fist out at is some of those old opponents that you know so well in history, Southern senators, opponents of civil rights of old. It's harder to do that with Bayes' next attempt to do it in 1976. After the 1976 election, Carter wins. There's still some concern because a shift of 10,000 votes in this very narrow election in Hawaii and Ohio would have elected Ford over Carter, even though Carter would have had more popular votes. So Bayes brings up his amendment idea again. It's 10 years from when he first started in committees. and six years since it's had a vote. He's got two problems, though. Emanuel Seller, his buddy in the House, has been defeated. Seller, although he was a big supporter of civil rights, very progressive Democrat in many ways, just could not get behind feminism and could not get behind an Equal Rights Amendment or any kind of legislation helping women. He's defeated in a surprising election by an upstart named Elizabeth Holtzman. The other problem that Bai has is that Jimmy Carter, though he was elected with a popular vote majority, it was slim. And he's looking at, in four years, maybe he might need the Electoral College. So he's somewhat hesitant. After all, he did get the votes of a lot of small states. So there's other delays and other opposition from senators. It takes until 1979 before 
he's able to launch his bill, and Carter does grudgingly support it. So it is, in effect, the president's plan to eliminate the Electoral College. But this time, By notices the country has big problems in the 70s. He says himself, if anyone came up to me on the street and said they want to talk about the popular vote instead of gas rationing, inflation, or the SALT treaty, I'd tell them they were out of their mind. Yet he introduces a vote, and this time something interesting happens. Now, in the late 70s, the American Jewish Council, the Urban League, some liberal groups are thinking that the Electoral College is the only way to enforce the vote of cities. So now, while he increases, there's, there's a good number of Southern Democrats who support his bill. Robert Byrd, who had opposed the cloture motion, meaning he voted to kill the bill the last time, now is on by side. Bob Dole, Republican of Kansas, who had voted to kill the bill last time, now is on by side. But he's lost another important group, Northern Liberals. Bill Bradley, Daniel Patrick Moynihan of New York, who argues that it's not about winning a majority, but it's about winning majorities and making sure that all interests have a role. On the Republican side, Richard Schweiker of Pennsylvania, Charles Percy of Illinois, liberals who had supported the 1970 effort are now against it. And significantly, today's time, Senator Joe Biden of Delaware votes no. There's no filibuster. Actually gets to the floor of the Senate, but it fails 51 to 48. I think it's important to tell this story because the easy story to tell about the Electoral College is it was forged in ancient times with people with powdered hair, ancient for American purposes anyway, 200 years ago. But this isn't just a matter of something that was created by the founding fathers and that we have today. There was a significant attempt to change it during the reform years of the 60s when the 23rd, 24th, 25th, and also the 26th Amendment were passed. Amendments weren't, like, out of the question at that time. Congress knew how to do them. State legislatures were used to amendment votes at this point. This was a debate that happened on this issue in a fairly modern time, you know, color TV times. The great fear repeated over and over again during those congressional and senatorial debates is that there could perhaps be a popular vote winner who wouldn't win the election. Here's a congressman from Ohio, James O'Hara. Democracy's test is that the will of the people shall prevail. I do think in the 1960s, if, for instance, the size of the disparity in 2016, over 2.2 million votes, had occurred, that there would have been easily votes for passage at that time. I think that the size of the difference between the popular vote winner in this election and the electoral college winner is so large that it makes the issue visible. And since I'm the guy that does the podcast on history and politics, you're getting a lot of questions now. Who who started this thing? How did it come about? The way I like to look at the Constitutional Convention of Philadelphia is 
really the beginning of the nation. I, of course, you could say that's not the case. It was 1776, and then, the, then you had a Revolutionary War, and then Yorktown was 1781, and there was a long time before the 1787 convention. But in real terms, there wasn't. In fact, if you take it from the time we ratified the Treaty of Paris, which officially ended the Revolutionary War, that's the beginning of 1784, to the Annapolis Convention, which set the stage for the Constitutional Convention, 1786, you're talking about two and a half years. Not very good one. Times of recession, times of rebellion, of of problems between states, really just two and a half years. And then you have the Constitutional Convention. Delegates from states meet May 1787. It begins with Edmund Randolph of Virginia proposing the Virginia Plan. And the plan is not what would end up happening. But the Virginian delegation thinks that it might be. This is how they lure Washington. Most of this is constructed by James Madison of Virginia. He plans that it will be an increased national government, a more powerful one. There will be an executive, and that executive will be elected by the legislature. That's the Virginia Plan. In hindsight, it was silly for the Virginians to think that they were going to control this whole thing with so many states and so many voices. There's a lot of fights, but most of them are between big and small states. They differ on whether to have a president or a council of presidents, like Pennsylvania does, again, a council executive. Eventually, they decide on one person, and then they discuss how to elect this person, initially called a executive, and eventually they shift to president, the term they were using for someone who was the president of Congress at that time, or Washington was sitting at this convention and presiding over it, so he's the president of the convention. See, that would be a good term. It kind of is a softer term than executive or magistrate or anything like that that might seem to give this person more power. The dominant method throughout the convention, as they're debating, May, June, July, August, the dominant method, and they have about 30 discussions over how to select the executive. The dominant method is that the president will be elected by Congress. Okay, but even there, there's variance because you can have the House elect the president, you can have the Senate elect the president, you can have a joint election for president. Each of those three do different things. If it's the House, you're sending it a little bit more to the people. If it's the Senate, that's very elitist. Because there's two senators for every state, you're increasing greatly the power of the small states. And if you do a joint vote, you're giving a little power to the small states, but giving more power to the larger states. So all three of those are debated. There is another voice, but it's a small one. James Wilson of Pennsylvania, Daniel Carroll of Maryland, Maryland. these delegates say the people should vote on the president. Only if you have a vote of the people for president are you going to give this office the independent mandate that it should have. Not only that, the people, Wilson argues, are, are going to be much less subject to cabal and cooperation. How are, they, how are all the people in all these varied states going to get together and agree on, on, a, on a cabal, all right? They, they're going to end up doing what's right if you give a popular vote for president. 
They look like pioneers today, but there was little support for their plan. More than a majority of the delegates did not want this popular vote. A very common objection is summed up by Charles Pickney of South Carolina. The people would be led by a few active and designing men. He's from South Carolina. He's using the same words repeated by Elbridge Gary of uh, Massachusetts. Designing men might lead the people in the wrong direction. Plus, there's differences between voting systems. Pennsylvania has a popular vote. Most states do not at this point. Many states are going to continue into the 1820s, selecting electors even, not by popular vote, but by state legislature. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Also, how are you going to have national figures to run for president at this time? This time where there aren't roads that are connecting all the states, when newspapers are in the local areas. The only people you know are a few figures like Washington. Perhaps Franklin would be the only that are known nationally. How's this going to work? You have to get a group of people that know who the players are, and that would be Congress. But even though they're pretty much settled on selecting the president, uh, having the president selected by Congress, there's always uneasiness about it because there's some fear that, well, now the president is going to be subject to them. He's going to have to curry favor with Congress to get reelected. Okay, we'll make the president ineligible for reelection. Well, most of the delegates don't like this either. If you make him ineligible for reelection, he's going to be a lame duck his whole term. He's, he's, he's not going to be inspired to do a good job. Presiding over this convention, though not participating in the debates, but presiding physically over the convention, being seen at all times, is the former General Washington. And I think a lot of delegates know that if they create an office of president, he's going to be it. Do you really want to give him just one term? Why, as long as you can have Washington, maybe it's a good thing. So they want to make the president eligible for re-election. But then if the choice is Congress, he's going to have to keep going to Congress and awarding them with favors. This is the exact kind of horse trading and cabal that they want to try to avoid in the new republic. During some of these debates, David Breeley of New Jersey, the chief of the Supreme Court there, advocate of small states, he's opposed to the vote by Congress 
He's opposed to a, a even a joint vote between the House and Senate. He says, you know, if you combine votes like that, where the small states' votes are mixed with the large states, we've done that in New Jersey with counties. And every time we combine counties, the smaller counties get eaten up. So August 31st, these delegates have been meeting for a long time, and matters that haven't been decided go to the Committee of Unfinished Parts or Postponed Matters, the Committee of Eleven. Their members are people who, you know, we don't often hear. Breeley is the head of this committee. Abraham Baldwin of Georgia, Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Daniel Carroll, our popular vote advocate from Maryland, Governor Morris from New York, but now representing Pennsylvania, John Dickinson of Delaware, Nicholas Gilman of Jane Madison. These are all the people who haven't been hotheads, by the way, in some of the other debates. And they go off and try to resolve some of these matters. Well, the interesting thing is the selection of president wasn't supposed to be one of these matters. This was decided, but I think there's uneasiness about it. Breeley's heading the committee. The trouble is we have no notes of this event, but from John Dickinson's report, it was James Madison and Governor Morris. Governor Morris is known for his talented pen. A lot of the writing of the Constitution, the style of it, is through his pen. In order to make a more perfect union, that's his phrase. Very well-known, very respected, has a peg leg. He's a force in the convention, maybe a quiet force. From Dickinson's account, it is Madison and Morris who sit down and work out the details of what's the Electoral College. But, you know, we don't have notes, so we don't know how much the other members of this group participated. In fact, the Electoral College idea isn't entirely new either. The idea of a mediated-type election isn't new Will, James Wilson proposes something like this early on in the convention. It's not detailed in the notes. John Dickinson has a plan where states will choose a few people, and then Congress chooses among them. So you have this kind of mediated election. But they work out the plan, okay? The electors will meet in the capitals on a certain day. They will vote for two people. To avoid Georgia just voting for somebody from Georgia, Massachusetts just voting for somebody from Massachusetts, and this thing ending up with one big tie that's hard to figure out. They have to vote, each elector, for at least one of those people to be from outside their state. Okay. Well, now you're giving the electors two votes, so what do you do with the second vote, Who with the person that comes in second? Well, they create the office of vice president. It goes back, and while not everyone is happy, they're happy enough. And during the constitutional debates, the Electoral College is not something that is widely criticized. And Alexander Hamilton and his Federalist paper is going to go out there and defend it, and that's why I think he's being tagged sometimes as the inventor of it, very much after the fact. Another point to address here, one that's coming up a lot now, was the Electoral College created to enforce slavery? And I don't think so. I mean, I, you're hearing a lot about it recently, uh, especially as there's some anger about the Electoral College, but nothing in particular about the Electoral College in and of itself is what's encouraging the slavery system. Remember, absent the Electoral College, the way the Constitutional Convention was going was to make the vote for president, a vote of Congress. 
And all of the compromises about slavery, including the three-fifths compromise, the way that Congress would do its representation, had already been decided at this point. An election of by Congress would have been just as prejudiced, if you will, in favor of slavery states as the Electoral College. There was nothing in particular about the Electoral College. The committee that decides this is representative of one person from each state. There's just as many northern members as southern members. Also, you have to keep in mind the largest slave state is Virginia, and Virginia wanted the Virginia plan, and that plan called for election by Congress. So nothing about the Electoral College is necessarily coming from them. New York, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, all of these states opposed the popular vote when James Wilson brought it up. This is like a kind of Pennsylvania and Maryland idea of the popular vote for president. New York would not do a popular vote for presidential electors until the 1820s. You don't have a popular vote going until the 1828 election. And I think it's it's something close to like debates that go on about Nazis. You like to attach like something bad to the debate. So we don't like the Electoral College now. We're going to attach attach its legacy to slavery. There's nothing particular about the Electoral College except to say that if you're going to say that, the whole Constitution, in effect, is connected to slavery. It was a union between states of which there were northern states that were discouraging slavery, if not banning it, and there were southern states that were continued the practice of slavery. There's no way to do a union where you're not going to perpetuate that institution. And so you could make an argument, and many did at the time of the Civil War, that the Constitution itself promoted uh, slavery. I don't think anything about the Electoral College in particular did more than the whole Constitution did, or more than, of course, the culture of the times did. Well, I hope we solved that mystery. I think that what you see in this story is that there's many contributors, and every time we talk about constitutional amendments, we also look at modern times. If something is wrong, why hasn't it been overturned? While the, the rules for passing a constitutional amendment are difficult, they're not impossible. It's been done 27 times. They can be done. So moderns bear some responsibility, just as the framers of the Constitution do as well. I want to thank you for listening. Website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.